0: Well, about 12 years ago, I was stationed in Port Angeles, Washington on a 110-foot Coast Guard cutter. And that summer, uh, 12 years ago, we spent more weeks than not out at sea off the Washington coast in the Strait of Juan de Fuca, mostly doing fisheries boardings and search and rescue and those types of things. And many times, we would just keep cruising all throughout the night. Now, every once in a while, I would have to stand watch in the middle of the night. So I would go up to the bridge after making my rounds and, and hang out with the guys up there. And one of the things we would do if we were close enough to land every once in a while was we'd pick up stray radio stations. And one of the things we liked to listen to in the middle of the night was coast to coast with Art Bell. Have you heard this? this radio program, right? All kinds of crazy stuff on there. Art Bell would have these guests that, you know, had either been abducted by aliens or they had all these crazy conspiracy theories. And Mind you, this is the mid-90s and there was this one guy on one evening who said that uh, because of the depletion of the ozone layer by the year 2000 we would all have to wear aluminum foil suits on the outside and, and Art Bell's describing his guest he's actually in studio and he, he described this guy like he's wearing a Hershey kiss on his head he's already wearing like this aluminum pointed helmet and. It just kind of makes you laugh. Now, of course, there was a conspiracy behind this. This man was telling us that that the U.S. government was actually trying to deplete the ozone faster so that then they could patent these aluminum suits and create a monopoly on these suits and sell them to the world and make an economic engine out of it. Sounds believable. Conspiracy theories, right? They're everywhere. Even yesterday... Uh, while we were picking up trash in the lettered streets. And by the way, thank you if you were part of that. that. That was our biggest turnout ever. We had 30 people from this church out picking up trash in the lettered streets. It's kind of boring. There wasn't enough for me, but anyhow. Anyway, so we're walking around, and I, Chris Sanders and I were right by this weird van, and there was these dogs. Remember the dogs barking in the van? And this guy said, Shut up, dogs! Well, I'm looking at this van, and there's all these conspiracy stickers on it, you know, like 9-11 was an inside job, and all this kind of things. Now, It seems to me that he just is fulfilling the stereotype that conspiracy theorists are always the weird guy in the van with the weird Hershey Kiss hat on weird shows in the middle of the night, right? But why is it then that conspiracy theories are really popular in the mainstream? Anyone remember the show X-Files? I mean, I really liked that show in the 90s. There are television programs based on conspiracy theories. There are lots of movies based on conspiracy theories. I think there's even a movie called Conspiracy Theory. Why is it that conspiracy theories are so popular? Well, this is a Chris Eltridge take, but I kind of have a take on that. I think that we as human beings see that the world is not right. We see that it's broken. But most of us don't really like to admit that we are the problem. So, we concoct conspiracy theories. That if there's some ethereal, dark power pulling the strings in the background, then all the things that are going wrong really aren't our fault. And we all have a common enemy, right? We can't explain all the brokenness. But it's there. But what if there were some elusive power behind it all? What if this power was not trying to destroy the world, but trying to save the world? The conspiracy I I speak of is God's conspiracy. John's gospel, particularly John chapter 11, what we're going to look at today, and the story of raising Lazarus, unfolds much of God's conspiracy. Jeannie just read the first half of the story, the, the half we actually covered last week. She read John 11, 1 through 27. And in that section, let me just capsulize it, we learn that Lazarus is sick, and that Lazarus and his sister Mary and Martha are friends with Jesus, and that Jesus loves this family. He loves these three. But when Jesus finds out the news, he tells his disciples, we're gonna wait. We're not going to go help Lazarus right now, we're not gonna go comfort Mary and Martha right now. He tells his disciples that Lazarus is dead, but that his death would not be permanent. In fact, he says that Lazarus died so that they could see God's glory. Now, two days after, Jesus gets the news, he and his disciples get up and they travel to Bethany, which is the place where Mary and Martha lived. And by the time they got there, Lazarus had already been dead four days. He was in the tomb. That part of the funeral was already over. And that's where we pick up the story today. So, Once more, would you stand as we read the second part of the story of Jesus and the raising of Lazarus. I'm reading John chapter 11, verses 28 through 53. Jesus has just visited with Martha. And she now is leaving, and it says this, when she, said, when she had said this, she went away and called Mary her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then there were Jews with her in the house, and they were consoling her. And when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her. And they were supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus, therefore, saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit, and he was troubled, and he said... "'Where have you laid him?' And they said to him, "'Lord, come and see.' And Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, "'See how we loved him.' But some of them said, "'Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man "'have kept this man also from dying?' So Jesus again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and there was a stone lying against it. Jesus said, "'Remove the stone.' Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. And Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus had done. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for all the people, and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only but in order that he might also gather together into one children, one children of God, all those scattered abroad. Father, would you open your word to us? And by the power of your Spirit, would you speak to us the the message that you want us to hear? Lord, help me as I proclaim your word. If I've got it wrong, would you correct us? Have grace and mercy on us today, Lord. Amen. Please be seated. So, Martha, who has just run out to meet Jesus, returns home and secretly says to her sister, Jesus is calling for you. Mary gets up quickly, the scriptures say, and she runs out to meet Jesus. And as Mary leaves her home, where she's been crying and mourning, all the people who have come to to mourn with her, they just assume that she's going to the tomb where her brother Lazarus is, is lying. Instead, of course, she goes to Jesus. Just a few verses earlier, in fact, Jeannie just read this. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. So the crowd thinks Mary is going to weep at the tomb. But she's going to weep before Jesus. The crowd thinks Mary is going to the tomb, the place of death. But Mary is going to Jesus, the life giver. When she gets to Jesus, she falls at his feet and says the exact same lines, word for word, that her sister Martha had said earlier. Lord, if you had been there, our brother would not have died. My brother would not have died. Jesus sees the weeping and the sorrow around him, and he begins to weep. Many of our Bible translations, in fact, the one in your pew Bible says something like this, that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled but I think that is a tragic understatement of what's really going on. In fact, the scholar D.A. Carson points out that the Greek word, embrymaomai is actually a much stronger word than just being deeply troubled. In other writings around the first century, this same word refers to intense anger or outrage. In fact, a lot of times it's used to describe the flaring of a horse's nostrils. Now stick with me for a minute. In the Hebrew text, which is what we call the Old Testament, which is also one of the languages that Jesus would have been familiar with, the Hebrew word for nose, point to your nose, is off. It's actually A-W-F if you were to transliterate it, so off. When it talks about God being angry in the Old Testament, it almost always talks about His off. And whether smoke coming out of his off or fire coming out of his off, but the flaring of his awful nose talks about Jesus' anger. Now, if this word, imbramaomai, also refers to the flaring of a horse's nostrils, you kind of get the connection there of what Jesus is talking about. He is not just feeling troubled in spirit or deeply moved in spirit. He is at the same time angry and outraged. John tells us that Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He loved them a lot. And we can understand why He would weep. I get that. But why is Jesus embroma'omai'ing? Why is He so angry? Why is He outraged? Well, I think there's at least two reasons. There's probably more, but I'm going to talk about two. First of all, I think He's angry. He's outraged at death, period. At this point... Sorry, Jesus is saddened, deeply grieved at the fallen state of the world, at the fate of humanity, the fact that people suffer, the fact that people do die. He sees the effects of sin and brokenness all around him. He's angry that there's death at all. And I tell you, at this point in the story, death itself should be very afraid because Jesus, the life giver, is full of Imbra'omai, he's outraged, and he's going to go put the beat down on death. He is going to the tomb and is going to pry Lazarus out of the icy cold hands of death. Imagine Jesus. Nostrils flaring, outraged at death. And he says to the crowd, Where have you laid him? Jesus is going to march over to that tomb and he's going to take what's his, Lazarus. He's the life giver. Jesus is also outraged and disturbed, no doubt, because not long after this incident, he's going to give himself over to death in order to save you and I and the rest of the world. But that's part of God's conspiracy, and we'll get to that in a moment. The second thing I think Jesus is angry about is the unbelief of the people. The unbelief of the people. For the first ten chapters of John's Gospel, we've learned Jesus is doing these amazing signs. He's turned water to wine. He fed over 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fish. He healed crippled people. He healed one guy's son over distance. He didn't even have to show up in the same town, just said the word, and the guy was healed. He healed a man who had been born blind from birth. That had never been heard of before. He did the kinds of things the Bible says only God can do. And that's not all. He also said the kinds of things that only God should ever say, such as, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. You get the picture. Jesus said the things only God should say, and he backed it up by doing the things only God is able to do. Jesus' power and His signs and His words were meant to glorify God. They were meant to point to the fact that He Himself was God in the flesh. But the people couldn't see beyond Jesus' special abilities. They were seduced, in a way, by His power. So when Lazarus is dead, they don't even think, Hey, God is with us. Hey, the life giver can just raise Lazarus from the dead. No, they comment like this, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? And of course, later on when Jesus is hanging from the cross, the bystanders would say these very words, He loved others and saved them, but He cannot save Himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, now come down from the cross that we might believe. The connections that we often make in our mind between power and privilege... I think, often get in our way of accepting the cross. How difficult it is for us to accept our Creator, the God of the universe, would actually give up His privilege, His position, and give Himself over to death to save us. God's conspiracy is very hard to believe unless we learn to accept what it means to have power on the one hand and grace on the other. So Jesus commands the crowd to remove the stone that's covering the tomb. Martha betrays more of her unbelief when she tells them that, you know, Jesus is going to stink in there. He's been in there four days. She still doesn't get what Jesus can do and what he's about to do. Jesus turns to her after she says this, Did I not say that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And now, listen up. We're getting to the heart of God's conspiracy. It would seem from the outside that raising Lazarus from the dead is exactly what Jesus is talking about. That raising Lazarus would be the same as revealing God's glory. But what if I were to tell you that something much bigger was going on behind the scenes and it wasn't run by the CIA or the Dharma initiative. It was God behind the whole thing the whole time. Notice how once Jesus calls Lazarus come forth, we never hear the name Lazarus again. All of a sudden, John starts narrating the story, the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot in the wrappings. The emphasis is not on Lazarus or him raising from the dead. The emphasis is on Jesus. And it's foreshadowing Jesus raising from the dead. Let me explain. Jesus knows he must die in order to save the world. He gives himself to defeat death and atone for the sin of the world. By waiting four days before he comes to see Lazarus, Jesus knows that the people could never claim it was a scam or that Jesus merely healed Lazarus. After four days, the guy's dead. He's in a tomb. It's sealed up. It's done. Jesus brought Lazarus back to life. Such an incredible feat was bound to cause a frenzy among the people. This frenzy would worry the religious leaders. The religious leaders said, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs and if we let him go on like this, All men will start to believe in him. And then the Romans, they're going to come and they're going to take our place and our nation. We've got to stop him. The leaders were so concerned about preserving their positions of power, they could not see and they could not care that God himself had come. The high priest Caiaphas said, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish ever wonder about that the worst thing that corrupt power can do to you is kill you I mean that's their answer to everything it seems like "Oh, we will just kill him later on in chapter 12 Lazarus is alive he's walking around and all these people are starting to believe in Jesus so then they say we got to kill him too we just got to cover this all up and we'll just use death that's the worst thing that these corrupt powers can do but death isn't so bad anymore if you have eternal life. Caiaphas thinks he can preserve his position and preserve what little power the nation has left by killing Jesus. He thinks that by killing Jesus, he's actually saving other people. And of course he's right. He just doesn't know why. John tells us that God has a conspiracy. God set these dominoes in motion. Jesus knew Lazarus would die. Jesus knew He would raise him to life. Jesus knew that by raising Lazarus to life, He would have to die. That by, if He would have just healed Lazarus, it wouldn't have caused that big of a deal. The authorities would have probably let Jesus go a little while longer. But by raising him back to life, that's the straw that broke the camel's back. That was the act that caused the leaders to conspire to kill Jesus. But Jesus already knew that through his death, he would save the entire world. Not just the Jews, but everyone. Remember John chapter 1. To everyone, everyone who believed in Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. And John 3.16, of course, for God so loved the world, not just the Jews, or not just the Americans, or not just the men, or not just the white people. He so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever, what? Believes, trusts in Him, might have eternal life. Corrupt powers, the worst they can do is kill your physical body. That doesn't go very far if you have eternal life. God does not save the world, the way we would plan a rescue mission. I mean, I've thought about this. I would have like, like Neo on the Matrix. Sorry if you haven't seen that. Like all these guns and I would come out blazing and like fight power with more power. That is not God's plan. God's conspiracy undermines those who think they have power. Who would expect the Almighty God to give Himself for our sake? That is God's glory. Do you understand that? God's glory is not His show of power. It's not the amazing things that Jesus did. It's not even raising Lazarus from the grave. God's glory is that the Almighty God gave Himself for us. And we're going to see that played out throughout the rest of John. The washing of the feet and going to the cross. Jesus is ever the servant. That is God's glory. Jesus gave Himself over to death. But the grave couldn't hold him. He rose from the dead three days later. And guess what? He's alive right now. And he reigns right now. And that's good news. Through faith in Jesus, we don't need to fear death any longer. The tomb will not hold us forever either. And while I agree that this could be a fitting ending to the sermon, I think it would be lopsided. Hear me. I think that the main point of John chapter 11 is God's conspiracy. That God gave himself to save us. But I also think there's something else going on here. The good news. And part of God's conspiracy. Is that he not only gave himself. So that we could have eternal life someday. But so that abundant life. That John, John talks about in chapter 10. Could begin a little bit right now. In my preparations this week. I have been struck. With how the crowds just assumed. Mary was going to weep at the tomb. Their focus was on death. But Mary goes to Jesus, the resurrection and the life. What happened then is amazing. Mary doesn't deny death. She doesn't pretend like it's not real. She doesn't overlook suffering. But she does something significant. She goes with Jesus to the tomb. She brings Jesus into her suffering. And I want to ask the question, how about you? Is there an area of your life that you are dwelling upon recently that's keeping you from experiencing abundant life? A part of you that's even killing you, holding you down, binding you up. Like Lazarus, are you tied up in the grave clothes of fear or sin or shame? If you're comfortable, I'd like to invite you to close your eyes and imagine a scene with me. Imagine yourself with Jesus. And you bring Jesus to a tomb. And inside that tomb is the ugliness that's holding you back, keeping you from experiencing abundant life. Name it to yourself silently. It could be grief. It could be anger. It could be pride or control or lust or shame or some other form of death. All of a sudden you realize it is very dark. You are no longer outside the tomb, but you are in it. And you are with that thing that's killing you. Suddenly, rays of light appear. And you hear the sound of stone on stone as the rock that covers that tomb is opening. And you hear your name called. And Jesus says, come forth. And he tells your friends, your brothers and sisters who are sitting around you right now, unbind him, unbind her. And you are released from sin and shame. You're set free to live. Oh, to hear and believe. Friends, that little visualization can be a reality. Father, I still can't grasp that you gave yourself for me, for us. And I confess that not only am I held back by ugliness inside, but sometimes I choose it. Thank you for offering us freedom freedom. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to want more than anything to be made whole and to be made well. That you would help us to trust you in place of those dangerous and deadly habits we have. Deadly thoughts we have about ourselves or others. Or even about you. Lord, help us to believe, to trust, to take off the grave clothes that you've already died, you've already said we're released. And I know it seems... Like we're asking a lot, we are. But Spirit of God, would you put a change in our hearts? Help us want more than anything to be free. To trust in Jesus alone. Amen.